You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. My guest today is Elise Salmon. She was born in Puerto Rico and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut. She's the oldest of three girls and was raised by a single mother. At 18, she enlisted in the Army, and after 20-plus years of military service, she retired from the Air Force as a lieutenant colonel and a women's health nurse practitioner. I'm so glad to have you here today, and I can't wait to hear more about your military story. So welcome. Thank you, Amanda. The first question I want to ask you is, why did you decide to join the military? (laughs) So I grew up in a small town in Bridgeport, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And honestly, there was a couple of um, people in my neighborhood that had joined the military and had come back. And I just loved the uniform. And then I was obsessed with uh, China Beach. And I wanted to be a nurse like Dana Delaney on uh, China Beach. And um, just very spontaneously and impulsively, I went to talk to an army recruiter. And I told him that I wanted to do medical. And then I did my ASVABs. And he says, well, your scores weren't high enough, but we can do this for you. And then he's like, we can also you know, do the GI Bill, do money for school. And I had gotten a scholarship at the University of Bridgeport for nursing, but I kind of knew that I wasn't ready for college yet. I wasn't the greatest high school student. So I enlisted in the army and no one in my family is military at all. So I had no no idea what I was getting myself into. That's how I ended up in the army for, you know, at 18. Went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, did basic training. And that was my introduction to the military and where my career began. And what year was that? When did you join? That was uh, 1985 because I graduated in 85 from high school. That seems like a million years ago. Um, So I graduated in June or May May or June from high school. And then I did some college courses during that summer and I worked. So I did the delayed entry program. And then I went to basic on September 17th, 1985. That's crazy. I know. That seems like a long time ago. I'm old. (laughs) So what did you do after basic training? What did you do in the Army? So I was a 75 Bravo. I was a personnel administration specialist. And basically what that meant was working in like the PAC office. Um, I don't even know if they call it that anymore, but I would like sign people out for leave. Like I basically had all accountability for all the staff, for, for all the military in our command. So I knew where everyone was for TDY. Um, I helped them get their TDY paperwork done, their leave paperwork. And there was a system called SIPERS, S-I-D-P-E-R-S that I used to maintain. And uh, so I worked at the command section, just keeping track of where everybody was and basically personal accountability, making sure that people were coming back from leave, making sure they had the proper paperwork. If people went TDY, I would help them get their paperwork set and then they had to sign back in. Yeah, I kept track of all that stuff, which to me sounds so crazy now, you know. Were you like a private and you were I was a, yeah, I came in as a private and I think I made E2 fairly quickly because I had some um, uh, college courses already. Okay. So they gave me some constructive credit for that. Uh, But I was an E2 and I was, I, you know, it's really funny because I don't remember having any other superiors above me in that office. And I really remember running that office almost by myself. 
as a private. There might have been other people there, but I don't have any memory of like, you know, like senior NCOs or anything in that office. I think I was in this office by myself and I'm sure there was other people there, but I don't remember them. And then I was so good at SIPPERS and maintaining accountability of everyone that I actually got coined by the um, base general, which I have a picture of at home. And I got coined actually a couple times and got awarded for my SIPPERS accountabilities because my numbers were so good. That's crazy. That's, I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, it is cool because I barely graduated from high school. Yeah. <laughs> With all that responsibility, and then you you met it, and they were so proud yeah. of you. That's so cool. I have good memories from the from that work um, environment, from that workspace. So, how long were you in the army? So, I was in the army for I think two years and nine months because I took an early. They had early separations. Um, you know, like the military, sometimes they mm-hmm. get like they have like lost or gained people. So, I was my first duty station was at Fort Dix, New Jersey, which was devastating to me because I had joined the military to go overseas and travel. That was the other, the other big reason why I had joined the military. And I grew up in Connecticut and I was literally like an hour and 40 minutes from home. I was so mad. And I hate at Fort Dix. I was like, this is like the armpit of the world. I was like, I, you know, as a 20 year old, I was like, what the hell? You know, it's like I joined the military for adventure and they sent me to Fort Dix, New Jersey. So, and it was funny because after basic, I went to Fort Benjamin Harrison to do my MOS training, my job training, and all my classmates were going to like Japan, Germany, Hawaii, and they were all crying because they all wanted to be close to home. And I was like, no, give me your orders. I'll take those orders, you know? But the army, unlike the Air Force, you could swap assignments, but the army wouldn't let us do that. And uh, so I ended up at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And I was there for about a year before I got orders to Korea. And it was really, really crazy because I was coming home on the bus. I had taken a bus to come home to visit my my mom and my sisters. And I don't know why I was sitting on that bus and I'm like, I'm going to Korea. And I don't know where that came from, But sure enough, that Monday, I got orders to Korea. So then I went to Korea. Then I finally got my adventure and spent a year in Korea and did the same job. And I also went to primary leadership development course there. So that was getting ready for my NCO boards. But I was such a chicken that I did not want to go in front of a board. I was so scared. And I really should have gotten out of the army as an E5. But I, I just was, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I just didn't feel comfortable and confident that I can meet and do a board. So even though my leadership was always pushing me to do it, I just kind of like held back. Um, So I got out in 1988 from Korea, Camp Humphreys, Korea as as an E4. And then what did you do? So then I got out, I got married, had my son, I stayed in the reserves. My husband at the time was still active duty and we spent our first probably four to six months of our marriage in Germany because he was finishing out his assignment in Germany. And then we came back and we got stationed in uh, Virginia, Northern Virginia. And that's where I had my son and where after I had my son, I started nursing school and I worked in the civilian sector for a little bit and then really missed the military. And um, it was right after the Iraq war, um, the Gulf war and the, my unit, my reserve unit was looking for volunteers, but I had a brand new baby and I was like 
deep in school and I just didn't want to lose that momentum. So I had told my command, I was like, if you really need me to go, I'll go. But if you're asking for volunteers, I just, I just can't break the momentum I'm in right now. Plus my son was like super young. I mean, he was a baby. And so I stayed back and I finished school. And when I finished my bachelor's in, I finished my associates in 92, started working as a nurse as 92 with my RN. And in 94, I graduated with my bachelor's. So then I got a commission in the army reserves, even though I had applied to come back on active duty. But what a lot of people probably don't remember is that after the Gulf War, they really scaled down on uh, medical services in the army. And they gave me a reserve commission, but not a active duty commission. So then I went to this conference and I met some Air Force nurses. The Air Force nurses, there was like four of them and two of them were prior army. And they're like, girl, you need to just come to the Air Force. You could just cross over. And at the time, I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know you can cross services. Even though my husband at the time was telling me, he's like, why don't you just look into some of the other services? And I was like, no, I want to go back in the army. That's what I did. That's what I love. But that following Monday, after I spoke to those nurses, I went to an Air Force recruiter and I said, I want to see about getting commissioned as a nurse. And he was like, oh, you're a NICU nurse. And a NICU is neonatal ICU, which is what I was doing in the civilian sector, which is why the army didn't commission me because the army was very focused on adult care, medical, surgical, and trauma and ICU. And my experience was all with neonatal ICU. And I had some adult healthcare nursing experience, but not a lot. So I told the recruit, I was like, hey, I do not want to do NICU in the Air, in the Air Force. I want to take care of adults. I want to deploy. I want to do all that cool stuff. And he's like, ah, well, if you're going to do that, then it'll take me six months to get you commissioned. And I was like, ah, but I want to go in now because I, I really like miss the military environment. I wasn't really happy about it with my civilian job. So I said, okay, well, if NICU's what's going to get me in, then let me go into the NICU. So I got commissioned in the Air Force in 19... 95. And my first duty station was in San Antonio. I did NICU, the neonatal ICU there, which was a great experience because I got a, got a lot of training. And then I was going through a separation and divorce. And after a year, when you're first commissioned in the Air Force at this particular time, after a year, you can choose any assignment you want. And they did it as a retention thing. So I asked my um, nursing supervisor, I said, hey, I'm going through this divorce and you know, there's some custody issues and I need to kind of get back to DC. That's how I ended up back in at Andrews Air Force Base. And I spent a good portion of my career at Andrews Air Force Base because of my family situation. So I came back to Andrews and I worked, um, they didn't have a neonatal ICU, so then I got... That's how I started getting into labor and delivery and uh, postpartum uh, care. And I did that for, I think I was stationed there for almost three years. And during that time, I was going through a pretty bad um, custody battle with my ex-husband and just trying to find my place in the world. And there was one day that um, one of the girls got orders to England and I was like, oh my God, I'm so jealous because I've always, I've had this fascination with England ever since I was like a young girl. And I actually even had a pen pal in Britain for many, many years when I was like from grade school to through high school. And the other girl, the other nurse that got these orders, she decided to decline the orders. And she said, you know, she was getting married and she didn't want to, she didn't want to leave the area. And I went to my chief nurse and I said, I don't know what I have to do, but I want those orders. And she's like, well, you're going to have to learn labor and delivery. And I'm like, Oh, I did not want to do labor and delivery. I wanted nothing to do with labor and delivery. I said, okay, but I really want to go to England. So that following week, I went to labor and delivery and they started 
training me in labor and delivery. And that first day in labor and delivery, it was so busy. There were so many women delivering babies that I literally delivered a baby by myself. And I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) because it was so crazy. Like everyone was like delivering at the same time. I did that. And then I think like a couple months later, I got my orders to England, went to England and um, had taken my son with me. And that's another whole personal drama with that. And I did almost four years in England. And while I was there, I worked labor and delivery. I worked in the family health clinic. I also was the officer in charge of the honor guard team for the base, which is really odd because I was a nurse. Pretty much my whole career, including in the army, I was always fascinated and always loved doing honor guard. So um, in Korea, I kind of started getting involved with honor guard stuff and and, um, was part of their little drill team or whatever. So that was a fun part of my England assignment. Besides that, it was an amazing assignment and I traveled all over all over Europe and met some incredible um, people that I'm still friends with you know almost 20 years later but I was uh, I became the officer in charge for the honor team for the honor guard team and went to Finland to bury a veteran there and just had some really great adventures in England and then from England I changed I put into change career fields and uh, went to OR school to learn to become an operating room nurse went to San Antonio for that training and then got stationed at Andrews. And it was funny because at the time, my assignment officer's like, we really don't want to go there. And I was like, yeah, well, I really don't want to go back to DC, but my family situation, that was really my priority at that point, personally. You know, you made a lot of sacrifices trying to do the right thing by my son. And uh, so I got stationed at Andrews and struggling with the whole, you know, custody thing still at this point. And then my, um, got remarried while I was in England, actually, but my husband at the time was army. So him and I spent most of our marriage in separate locations. Um, but finally got my son to, uh, my son decided that uh, at 13, he could make a choice of where he wanted to be. And he decided that he wanted to come live with me. And while I was at Andrews, I worked in the operating room. Then I became the executive officer for the commander. And from Andrews, I got a scholarship assignment to go back and become a nurse practitioner. So I got my AFID assignment and went to Virginia Commonwealth University to get my master's as a women's health nurse practitioner. So I did that for two years. And that was an amazing opportunity because I went to grad school for two years full time and everything was paid for. And I got my master's and I got my nurse practitioner out of it. After I graduated from BCU, I went to, I got assigned to Colorado Springs at Peterson Air Force Base. And that was my last assignment from there at Peterson six months. I don't think I was even, so I got there in May and in April, I got short notice uh, notification that I was going to Afghanistan. And I literally got told on a Friday and left the following Friday. And um, of course, because you can't control life and life is crazy. It was the worst possible time in my personal life to be deployed. But you know, you do what you have to do. My command could not really tell me what I was doing because nobody really knew. They just knew that someone, some general had created this need to put female treatment teams together with uh, special forces, whether it was Navy SEALs or Army Special Forces. And what's funny about this is that the Army had requested senior medics. Well, they went to, with the request for forces, they went to the Navy first and the Navy said, no, we, we can't support this. And they came to the Air Force and you know the Air Force, the Air Force always has to do everything better. 
And the Air Force is like, oh, well, we'll send, um, we'll send female providers, meaning female nurse practitioners and midwives. So when we finally all got to Philly and we were on our bus to do combat training at Fort Dix, which is another story, we all looked around and we're like, oh my God. Like, so there was like a couple captains, a couple majors and a couple lieutenant colonels. And we were all women's health nurse practitioners. And there was one midwife and we did combat skills training at Fort Dix. And we all had the same story that we basically got given one week notice that we were going to this deployment. And none of us really knew what we were going to be doing. We all kind of got the same story. We did our training and I think that was about six weeks. And then we ended up in Afghanistan in late May of 2011. And when we got to Bagram, this was the fun part. We had the surgeon general that was in charge of us. The, she was a trauma surgeon. She was a lieutenant colonel in the army. And this is our, our first time meeting her. And at this point, we still have no idea what we're doing in Afghanistan. We just know that we got, that we're going to be with these teams and we're doing something, but we're not really sure what. This Lieutenant Colonel, she like meets all of us and she's like, oh my God, you guys are all like providers and senior officers. And we're like, yeah. And she's like, we just wanted some senior medics to help the teams. And we all looked at each other like, what the hell, you know? So leave it to the Air Force to always go in a step above, you know, aim high. So we did our training. When we first got to Afghanistan, we did two weeks of training with the Special Forces. And then at the end of those two weeks, and we did weapons training and, you know, intel training and all this other crazy training. And then at the end of that, and actually I have a funny story. Well, it's not funny, but it is a good story. There was one range training that we had to do. So they basically had to train us like on the M60s and all the big, you know, gunner stuff just in case. And we did this training outside of Bagram in like this open field village, this open fields in Afghanistan. And at one part of the training, we had to walk across the field, across this field to throw grenades. So Part of our training at Fort Dix was like looking for IEDs and making sure we knew where we were walking and all that. So we're walking across and one of the Jeeps had gone by and we're walking across this field and there was this other, one of the other nurses was next to me. And I noticed that there was like a rocket like sticking out of the sand. I don't know how anyone missed this, but I saw it. So then I went to like the special, one of the special forces guy and I said, hey, I think there's an IED over there. He looked at me like I had six heads, like, yeah, you're a major, you're a nurse, you're female like yeah whatever but he I give him credit he did go and look so they went over there to look at that and they uncovered like 25 cachet of explosives how all of us walked through that and there was cars that drove through that and didn't get none of us got hurt was incredible That's incredible cool. incredible so of course then after that day we like we'll go back to the base and one of the guys walks up to me he's like hey I heard that you found some some goodies in the ground today and I was like uh yeah <laughs> I don't want to call it that you know but it was one of those things that I never really got acknowledged for that. And not that you do it for the acknowledgement, but I was like, it was just kind of like put under the table, you know, under the rug. Oh, it was, you know, one of our nurses, the major, you know, actually saved, you know, 13 or 15 lives that day because I was the only one that saw that. That was my beginning of Afghanistan. And at the end of our two weeks, um, this lieutenant colonel, she pulls us all together and she has a big map of Afghanistan and she starts telling us where we're going and who the teams are that we're going to be with. And she looks at me and she says, and you're going to the circle of hell and you're going to be with army special forces. And I'm looking at her like, lady, 
I just was like, I couldn't believe she said that to me. You know, it's like, you could have put that in, in, in a much more reassuring way. I literally had to go. So all of us ended up being broken apart. So none of us were together. And what was interesting with this is that one of the girls, she was going with a Navy SEAL team, but her team wasn't ready for her. So they put her with me. And for whatever reason, this nurse did not like me. She was so nasty to me. And when everybody, when the Lieutenant Colonel said, well, this person's going with you, you guys are going together. I, the, the rest of the team was like, oh my God, that is not good. <laughs> so we had to go to another headquarters before we finally went to our little fob. And uh, we took like a two hour helicopter ride. And the whole time we were on the helicopter ride and we we're flying over Afghanistan, I'm thinking, oh my God, if we crash, I'm going to get eaten alive. I'm going to get raped. It's, you know, it's like, there's going to be cannibalism. I mean, I was like thinking all this crazy crap because I was like, I just still, the whole experience was like so surreal to me of what was going on. So we get to TK, which is our first, our next headquarters. And we were there for a couple of days until we can get our transportation to our final destination. And uh, we get there and then our PA that was in charge of us wanted to put a security, Navy security person um, with us. And this Navy security person, uh, Christine Conley, who is an amazing, amazing sailor and woman, she came with us. And I had kind of like, once we landed, and I kind of had the same thoughts because then when we were going to Tinsley, where, where I was going, our helicopter was like stopping at all these different places, picking up people. And of course, everyone were picking up our men, you know? So there's literally like me and another girl, me and this other girl in the helicopter. And again, I'm having all these crazy thoughts as I'm looking down and, you know, and plus, you know, this is my first real combat deployment. So you you hear all the stories of things that go on over there and, and you're just like, your mind, your mind is going crazy. And we finally land. And then we were picking up guys like everywhere. And we were picking up locals that I'm sure were probably, you know, a part, there were different parts of the team and other guys. And all I keep thinking is like, how do we know where we're supposed to get off? You know, because I didn't know. So we get to Tinsley and I think one of the crew chiefs kind of turns around and says, like, you know, and it was in a yellow sticky because you couldn't really hear anything. Uh, he's like, get out, get out, get out. So they're like literally throwing our bags out in the sand and they're pushing us to get out. And we're like getting out. And then, you know, these guys show up and they're full bearded up. They're in civilian clothes and they're in like the, um, oh, what do they call those things? Like the little razors. And they come up and they grab our bags and the helicopters take off and there's all this sand blowing and it's like 160 degrees out, which is miserable for me. Even though I'm Puerto Rican, I hate the heat. Like I hate being hot and sweaty. And they drop us off there. The helicopters take off. And I linked up with Christine because she's on another helicopter. And I am literally losing my mind at this point. I'm like, I didn't join the Air Force for this. I, this is why I, I didn't do the Army. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm like, literally like losing my mind. And Christine, who's deployed a million times, she's looking at me like, oh my God, this girl is going to be a mess on this deployment. <laughs> and she's just like, I am really scared. And she told me later, you know, like many years later she's like I was really worried about you you know and I was like I was like out of my mind we show up to the like the convoy area where they have all the trucks and there's a bunch of other people there and there's like weapons skewed all over the place and the guys were like okay like we're going up to the ops center and to to give you guys a briefing and they're like you can leave your weapon and I'm like I'm not leaving my weapon that's the first thing they told us not to do in training not to leave your weapon anywhere so I was like this this baby's coming with me 
And um, so we go to the op center, they give us our briefing and then they tell us, you know, we're showing you guys, you know, to your rooms. Well, I get to my room and I dump all my stuff. And of course, um, I am in a very aesthetic person. Like I love a beautiful, warm home. And this room, I go in there and it is filthy. And it's, it's better. It's four walls. But it's just, if you, you know, you could just imagine you're like in the middle of nowhere and it's in Afghanistan. But, you know, I take my stuff out and I start kind of making it my little home. And um, I had to go out to get something and I locked the room. Well, I locked myself out of this room twice in a matter of an hour. So that just tells you like, these guys were like, okay, this major shows up. She's Air Force she's a medic and then she's got makeup on. So they're like, they were all like thinking that I was just going to be like a hot mess during this whole deployment. And the one guy comes up and he, he's a major, the mayor of the, of the fob. And he's like, why are you locking your room? And he's like, no one's going to take your stuff. And he's like, but that's the first thing they taught us to lock everything up and to secure our equipment, you know? So I was like, I don't know anyone here. I don't know what situation is here. So at one point, the second time I locked myself out of the room, then a bunch of the other guys showed up because they wanted to see who this girl was that kept locking herself out of the room because they're like, <laughs> they couldn't believe this. <laughs> so they all show up. And of course, I'm mortified. Like, um, I've been here for like less than an hour and I'm already making a name for myself. So Christine is in another room and she shows up to my room like maybe a half hour later. She knocks on the door and she's like, I just wanted to check up on you. And I said, and I'm like, just give me 24 hours. I'll be fine. And literally I just needed 24 hours to just kind of get a grip on what was going on in my life right now at that point. So her story is now whenever she talks to anybody about how her and I became friends, it's like, just give her a Gatorade in 24 hours and she'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So I was gone for almost eight months. Um, when I got there, the guys really didn't know what to do with me. And frankly, I didn't know what to do because we weren't given like a clear direction or clear um, mission, I guess, you know, and as medical officers, we're not intel people. We're not supposed to be gathering intel. And honestly, when I first got there, the team, the special forces team I was working with, they had a lot of internal issues going on. And, uh, I had to kind of maneuver my way of how was I going to be productive and contribute to the team while I was there, but also dealing with all the internal stuff that was going on. So the next day after, you know, we got a good night's sleep and, and luckily we were so blessed because we had air conditioning, which was a huge thing for me. And we had internet, which I know a lot of the fobs can't say, but you know, in hindsight now, and you know, I look back almost eight years later and I think about how blessed we, I was that I was in a place that actually had pretty decent uh, anemones compared to other places, even though we were very, very small and we were literally in the middle of nowhere. It was a three to four hour, it was probably a three hour helicopter ride just to get to the next biggest, uh, our headquarters. And, um, Christine knocks on my door and we go get coffee and do all that stuff. And then we go to the clinic because the camp had a little clinic 
And it had been, I don't think it had been bombed out, but it was in disarray. So the first thing I did was try to get the clinic cleaned up and get things organized so we could kind of see what supplies we had and what we did. And then, and then we just kind of got into a groove where we just opened up the clinic and the village that was next to us, literally that, that following, like probably within a few days, they heard that there's a new doctor in town at the camp. And we opened the clinic and the first, my very first clinic day was like 25 kids, little Afghan kids that came to the clinic. And none of them necessarily didn't really need anything per se, but we did a lot of eye washes and, you know, took care of some bruises and uh, cleaned out ears and showed them how to wash their hands and, you know, just kind of connected with them. And the one thing I remember about that particular time is that the Afghan kids were so beautiful. They were such beautiful, beautiful children. There was this one little boy that he was orphaned and I just fell in love with him. If I could have brought him home, I would have because he was just such a sweet, sweet little boy. And he just had that sadness in their eyes that they all do over there. And um, I always wonder like how he's doing now, but that just became our routine. I just would really open up the clinic on a daily basis and, and have patients that would come in and take care of whatever they came in with. And as a women's health nurse practitioner, the blessing or the gift that I had to that team was that because I had so many different nursing experiences, I knew a little bit of everything. So I was able to function in a fairly competent way there as far as being able to take care of, you know, trauma and and uh, the few women that I did take care of, I think out of 500 patients that I took care of, um, give or take, I mostly saw pediatrics uh, kids and men. I think I only saw actually five women, two of them or three of them being OB patients. There was one lady that came in that had had a miscarriage that I literally had to do, literally had to, she was bleeding. And for anybody that's medical, especially OB, she was bleeding and I literally had to manually take out the products of conception and the fetus um, with my hands because we didn't have any kind of suction to to clean out her uterus, get her to, to stop the bleeding. And so that was one of the most impactful cases there. And then the very first week I was there, there was a family, a very older Afghan gentleman and his wife, who was extremely, she was basically, I think she was less than 15 years old and he was in his sixties. And the culture there is so interesting, but they had brought their baby who basically was dying from dehydration and the baby was not drinking her milk. And I was able to start um, an intravenous uh, IV fluid and get some fluids into the baby and the baby perked up. And then we also were able to give her some formula and give her some hydration too. And they came back a couple of weeks later and the baby was doing much better. So those are some of the things I did there. Now, I ended up working with two special forces team. And the second, that first team that was there, I never really went outside the FOB for any missions. But the second team that came in, they took me out on a couple medical missions. So I did some interesting work with them and even did some, um, we had a vet that came out once and we had a vet cap where we actually went and gave immunizations to a bunch of goats, which was um, a lot of fun and crazy. And what was fun about that, that mission outside the FOB too was that I had met, I had taken care of, we had a lot of construction Afghan, Afghani workers on the camp. And I had basically taken care of, unknowing to me, I had taken care of a whole family of, of gentlemen and, you know, the son and the, and the husband and the grandfather. And um, when I went out on that particular mission, I met the wife and she knew who I was, but I didn't know who 
I didn't know who she was and, but the kids knew me. So they had, you know, once we went into the village, the kids brought me to their mother and the mother um, had said to me, thank you for taking care of my husband and my son. And then I had taken care of the whole, you know, that the group of that family without even realizing it. That was one of the things that was really impactful to me when I left the camp seven months later was that it was the Afghan men that I had taken care of that came up to me and they're like, who's going to take care of us now? Because, you know, they had come to see me for traumas or I remember one young man had an abscess on his cheek that I, I had to take care of. And, you know, they had infections from different wounds that weren't taken care of. And, and I saw some pretty horrific, some pretty horrific pediatric trauma there. One of the kids towards the end came in and he had fallen into a well and basically was almost descalped. Like, I can't even describe what this trauma looks like, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. But when I got it, I was like, when the kid, when they brought the kid in, I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do with this? Because our resources were extremely limited there. But we had sutures and we had normal saline. And I said, okay, so we're going to start suturing this up. That's where my OR experience came into play that, you know, and plus I had taken an, a suturing class in, in grad school. And we just sat there and very patiently, and this wasn't a plastic, this was not going to look pretty once it healed, but at least we saved the kid and hopefully prevented infection. But we cleaned out his wound and sewed him up. And then we sent him to TK for further medical evaluation. So there was a couple times where we really had to get the patients out of there because we just really didn't have the resources. And that was way out of my scope of practice. I did what I could to stabilize the patients, but then um, I really had to fight to get them out of there to get them you know, proper, more advanced medical care than what I can give them. It sounds like you had a pretty unique experience in Afghanistan. A yeah. lot of people don't get to interact with the people of Afghanistan. And it seems like you left such a big impact on the people that you were able to interact with. You know, it didn't feel like that when I came back. It did, I felt like, especially when I talked to some of the other girls that were on the team and some of the stuff they did. But in hindsight, telling my story and talking about, I just can't believe it, I'm crying. I haven't cried in a long time talking about this. You know, I guess it did make an impact and I did make a difference. I think a lot of times we're really good at like keeping the barrier up and then sometimes it just hits you, so. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think as women too, um, especially veteran women, I think we have a tendency to minimize our contributions to our organizations and and especially our deployments especially if we weren't necessarily like in the fight you know people said to people had said to me well you weren't getting shot at um, when I came back and you know you were in a pretty cush place and I'm like I was sitting in Afghanistan in the middle of freaking nowhere I was pulling guard duty at two to three o'clock in the morning where it was like pitch black and I am so blessed that I didn't have no sexual trauma out there that I didn't get hurt, that we didn't get bombed. But, you know, every single time we were doing those kind of things, there were so, when you think about it, I was just lucky and blessed. And I had an angel watching over us. In fact, just a couple months before I left, there were two guys, two um, guys that were trying to put uh, IEDs in the middle of our village and on a road that we used to go through all the time. The, the situation that it was, they blew themselves up and then we had to go out there to, you know, take care of them, fix them and stabilize them until we can get them, you know, get them off to Afghanistan. And it was during one of those, that particular incident where one of the army medics, special forces medic guys that I hadn't worked with 
he looked at me, he says, you're actually, you know, he's like, you're pretty good. And I was like, oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> because I don't know what he had heard, but you know, the guys knew I would tell him, remind him all the time when they would bring things in. And I'm like, you guys, this is like so out of my comfort zone right now, but I'm going to do my best where I would tell him I do women's health. Like that is my thing, <laughs> right. you know, but you just, you, you adjust, you overcome and you do your best. And, um, I think that's why it's so important for, for women veterans in particular to tell our stories because I think we all have very unique deployment experiences and experiences in the military. I agree. Yes. <clears throat> My deployment was not what I expected. I deployed with the Army, so I was like, wait, I joined the Air Force. <laughs> yes, how exactly. I, how did I end up here? So, <laughs> yes. I, um. So we learn, I think we know pretty much most of your story. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before I get on to my last question? Um, no, I, I would just tell other veterans, women, men, you know, whatever, that when you come back, particularly for the Air Force, the Air Force has a bad habit of, of deploying us individually. And I think that... I understand why they do it and we're filling in emissions, but I think that when you come back and you transition from deployment and you're not around the people that deployed with you, it makes transition really, really hard to redeploy back to your workplace, especially if you had um, experiences that really impacted you. And I think that was the hardest thing for me. And I really think that um, it took five years post-deployment for me to finally kind of get back to myself. And it's funny because telling the stories about deployments, when I first got back, I couldn't tell them without crying. And I got really good. And then it's funny that I got emotional telling the story again because I haven't told it in a really, really long time. Um, but I think that when we come back, we need to really reach out to our support systems and be kind to ourselves. And it's really important that we do self-care. But I also encourage people not to make rush decisions about relationships or finances or anything when they come back. Because um, I think when we come back, we're just dealing with a lot of mental challenges. And I think it takes a long time to kind of get back to yourself. Um, and it's not, it may not be the self that you went on deployment. Mm -hmm. It's a new version of yourself. But I think that people really, and I wish that's something that somebody really would have told me that. And I think that's the thing that's like, I went to Afghanistan without any mentors to tell me what to expect. And I came back without any mentors either to tell me that helped me through my transition. And I wish I would have had that. Right. I agree with that because I feel like there's such a big focus on like, you're home now, you should be fine. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes. I'm home now, but <laughs> I still went through all, I even went mm -hmm. to a counselor like yes. a week or two after I got home and she's like, you'll be fine. It'll just take a couple weeks. And then like years later, I'm still struggling with things. And I think a lot of it had to do with going to a Air Force counselor who was like, you're fine. And I was like, yeah, but like I didn't, I didn't go on a typical Air Force deployment. No. Not saying that that makes it any different, but for someone to tell me like you're fine when I'm like, no, there's there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. I think I need help, and they're like, no, you're fine. It'll just you'll just be back to normal. And I was no, like, yep, you're right. And you know, and I think you hit it on the nail. The Air Force 
sends us on these joint task forces with other branches and we come back and nobody understands what we did out there. Nobody understands like the different challenges that we mm-hmm. had because we didn't have, we didn't have a team that we deployed with, you know? So not only did we have to adjust to a mission that we were completely unfamiliar with or unprepared for, but then you're not, you're dealing with other different organizational challenges that it's different if you're Air Force and you deploy to Bagram and you're working in the hospital with other Air Force people that are in the same um, branch. Right. And, you know, and I'm, I'm like you, I am not, I am not adverse to counseling and I knew I needed counseling and I didn't want to go on base because I think I had so many, um, so many things I had to get off my chest. And um, luckily the one time I did go to a counselor, um, a social worker counselor on base who was active duty, he had deployed with the army too. So he understood, he was able to relate to me and some of my struggles. Um, But when I came back, I, you know, I didn't handle things as well as I should have. and I did go to my counselor, my civilian counselor. She told me at one point when I finally ended the, the relationship with her, she was like, she goes, I'm really going to miss you. You've been one of my most fascinating um, clients or patients. And I'm like, I'm really not sure how to take that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's like the Air Force sends you on these joint task forces and then you come back and no one had the same experience as you, you know, and, and who do you relate to? Who do you talk to? You know, and my husband at the time was like, you need to forget about that and just come back to reality. You're here now. And I was like, you've never deployed. You have no idea. And he didn't want to hear my stories. He didn't want to understand. He just wanted me to come back and be normal and move on with life. And like I said, it literally took me five years post-deployment to really feel Mm -hmm. like I'm back to my normal self. Yeah, that that's really sad that he didn't want to hear because that's true. Like you're not going to go through a crazy life experience and come back Mm -hmm. and be the same person. That was like one of the hardest parts for me and my husband is that I was changing, but he also was changing. And so Mm -hmm. like it took a little bit of time for us to adjust to being back together and then just to talk through like what had happened over the year that we were separated and that sort of thing. So yeah. Yeah. How long were you deployed for? I did four months of training in Indiana and then nine month deployment. So I I left on November 6th and I got home on the 1st of November. So it was almost exactly a year. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of changing in a that's a lot of that's a lot of time in a human's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my birthday's in November, so I was gone pretty much the whole year. I was twenty-five. So I wow. I left when I was twenty-four and then I turned twenty-six like a couple weeks later. And so it was kind of crazy because like my whole year of being twenty-five was just kind of like this like time warp where like mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. I had no control over my life and was just in a yep. so it was kind of crazy. Yes. Yes. I totally understand that. So what was it like for you to transition out of being in the military? Because you were in the military for over 20 years. Yes. Um, You know, it's funny because I, 
came back to Peterson after deployment and started running the clinic and um, got picked up for Lieutenant Colonel. And I had never thought as an E1 nothing in the army that I would make it that far. And first of all, I never expected to have a military career. It just kind of happened. And I just kept, I kept, I stayed in and as long as I was having fun and being challenged and enjoying it. Um, but I kind of decided to retire um, again. I was still transitioning from that deployment. And in hindsight, I probably should have stayed in a little bit longer. Um, but I transitioned. I found a job that I had been monitoring um, online. And when that job came up, um, I decided to apply for it. But there had been some leadership stuff that was going on in my command that just made me feel like I wasn't being supported. And I was like, you know what? I think it's time for me to, to get out and retire because I didn't want to leave on a bad note. I wanted to leave on a positive note and leave on my own terms. And I felt like, you know what? I made Lieutenant Colonel. I have my education. I've contributed. I've been in for over 20 years and actually I have 27 years of total federal service. And um, I transitioned, took this job in Washington state um, as a women's health nurse practitioner working for Department of the Army at Madigan Army Medical Center. And I felt like, well, I'm going from something I know to another something else that I know. Um, my transition, the first three years at Madigan were really rough. I, I think I had a lot of burnout and I was still dealing with a lot of uh, post-deployment uh, readjustment that I still kind of had buried and wasn't really dealing with. Plus, I had gone to, through a second divorce, um, which was really tough and uh, definitely not where I thought I would be post-deployment, almost 50 years old. And um, my son got really sick of August of 27. He has epilepsy. And um, I had to move him. He was living in Virginia. And I moved him um, back to Washington with me because I was like, I can't really support you unless you're closer to me. And I can't keep doing this back and forth. And I had established a life in Washington and I really love it there. Um, and uh, when I resigned from Madigan, I had went to a wound company and worked there for six months. And after six months, I got unceremoniously uh, laid off. They said, hey, the company's going in a different direction. We're laying you off. I got two weeks notice. Well, during that six months that I was unemployed, it's really when I started to transition because I got involved with Lean In. I started kind of really doing a lot of soul searching and reading and got involved with the veteran community and really started to find my voice. Um, and I really honestly feel like I'm still in transition. I feel like I, I'm still growing and I haven't really pinpoint yet where my voice or where my talents or gifts um, are going to be best suited. I'm still trying to figure that out. So I would still really say that even though I've transitioned somewhat successfully, that I'm still in transition five years post point, uh, post uh, retirement. Because it'll in September it'll be five years that I've been retired. Yeah, it's a process. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. And you know, when you've been doing something for so long, you, you really need that quiet time of reflection and kind of rediscovering who you are and what it is that you want to do. And right now, I've really gotten passionate about public speaking. And I really have felt I've always felt very passionate that women veterans, we don't tell our story enough. And it's important for us to tell our stories. 
So right now I'm working towards, towards that to eventually write a book and continue to, to mentor veteran women and to continue to tell my story um, as much as possible because I think guys do a much better job and there's a much better representation of male veterans, but mm -hmm. I don't think there, I don't think there's enough of women veterans and what we're doing and contributing. And I don't think enough of our stories are out there. I agree. That's why I started the podcast. I know. I love it. <laughs> so I, love it. I have one last question. Uh, what would you tell girls considering joining the military? I would tell them to do it. I think the military is life-changing. I think if you join the military, I think from day one, you have to have a very open mind uh, concept and that you need to find a mentor either before or after you join the military and really guide your career from day one. You can't wait, you can't come in. And I think this is what I wish I would have had a mentor from day one because I would have done some things very differently in my military career. Um, I think that, one of the things I did well is that I took advantage of every situation, every opportunity given to me. I got all my education. Um, I really made the best of it. And I think if, for, for anyone, whether it's a woman or a man that joins the military, you need to come in with an open mind. You need to give her your full heart and you need to do your best. And while you do your best and you're serving, um, and you're helping others and you're doing your professional development, really look at all the opportunities that are out there and take advantage of them because that's how you have the best career possible. Um, and when I say best career, I mean a service of others that when you're serving others in your best capacity and you're being the best, then you're contributing back to society and contri contributing back to the organization. And I think a lot of people, because they come in young, and it's like their college years, really, they don't realize it till much later mid-career or much later in their um, later careers that they've missed opportunities because they were too busy partying or too busy, you know, getting caught up in unit drama, where instead is from day one, start working on college, start taking courses to advance in your professional career um, and take it seriously and, and do the professional development and build those connections and relationships from day one. And I wish that really, I wish the air force or the, any other branches, I wish that they had like a mentorship program from day one. Like we have mentors in the military, but I wish from day one, you know, they would assign you someone that's been in for a little bit longer and says, okay, these are the things that are, that are available. These are the things that you should focus and try to figure out how you want to do it. Because I think there's lost opportunity for retention there when um, not everyone has the honor or the gift of having a mentor from day one in the military. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It is definitely unique and it needs to be told. So keep working um, on what you're working to get your story out there. And I also want to write a book, so I <laughs> hope that you get a chance to write yours too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Amanda, for what you're doing. And um, my name's Elise Salamone, and I'm a retired Air Force veteran and Army veteran. And I am so happy for this opportunity. I really appreciate what you're doing. And um, please let me know how I can help you to um, reach out to other women veterans to get our story out there. Thank you so much for what you're doing for our community. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmentomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.